Thank you, Brother Otley, for that treat. Events and circumstances in the last days make it imperative for us as members of the Church to become more grounded, rooted, established, and settled. Jesus said to his disciples, Settle this in your hearts, that ye will do the things which I shall teach and command you. If not so settled, the turbulence will be severe. If settled, we will not be tossed to and fro, whether by rumors, false doctrines, or by the behavioral and intellectual fashions of the world. Nor will we get caught up in the talk show mentality, spending our time like ancient Athenians in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Why be concerned with the passing preferences of the world anyway? For the fashion of this world passeth away. However, brothers and sisters, we cannot be thus settled in doing what Jesus has commanded unless we are first settled about him. If Jesus were only a man, albeit a very good man, his counsel is merely that of a meridian moralist. It is quite another thing, however, for the creator of multiple worlds whose central concern is our individual happiness to command, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Our task, therefore, is to reconcile ourselves to the will of God and not to the will of the flesh. The poet-prophet Jacob witnessed among Church members how covenant-breaking wounded delicate minds and how hearts were pierced with deep wounds. He was weighed down, he said and was so heavy with sorrow because some members of the Church esteemed their covenants so lightly. As I witness some of today's walking wounded, I understand Jacob's feelings as never before. Some Church members, alas, are neither reconciled to the will of God nor are sufficiently settled as to their covenants. Some unworthily covenant afresh, partaking of the broken bread, while having broken their covenants of marriage. Some give of their time, yet withhold themselves, being present without giving of their presence, and going through the superficial motions of membership instead of the deep emotions of consecrated discipleship. Some try to get by with knowing only the headlines of the gospel, not really talking much of Christ or rejoicing in Christ, and esteeming lightly his books of scripture, which contain and explain his covenants. Some are so proud they never learn of obedience and spiritual submissiveness. They will have very arthritic knees on the day when every knee shall bend. There will be no gallery then to play to. All will be participants. Maintaining Church membership on our own terms, therefore, is not true discipleship. Real disciples absorb the fiery darts of the adversary by holding aloft the quenching shield of faith with one hand while holding to the iron rod with the other. There should be no mistaking. It will take both hands. Real disciples are also precept by precept and experience by experience becoming ever more like the master they serve. We can neither be the woman nor the man of Christ unless we are coming to have the mind of Christ. This happily includes, wrote Paul, those once alienated and enemies in their minds. We can be so clever, like the adversary, and still not know the mind of God. We can be ever learning and yet allow the everlasting truths to get lost in life's busy shuffle, as in this lamentation. Where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? And where is the knowledge we have lost in information? To help us become true disciples, the Lord has given us prophets and scriptures to strengthen us, to prepare the weak for those things which are coming on the earth and for the Lord's errand in the day when, by the weak things of the earth, the Lord shall thrash the nations by the power of his Spirit. 
Feasting upon the fullness of the gospel will help us to overcome. Additionally, if we will keep our covenants, the covenants will keep us spiritually safe. One day, and why not soon, the people of this church will fulfill this prophecy. The power of the Lamb of God descended upon the saints of the Church of the Lamb, the covenant people of the Lord, who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, and they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. However, our collective light does not yet shine brightly enough to be a standard for the nations. The Church would grow much faster now, numerically and spiritually, if it were not for the wickedness of the world. It would also grow much faster if you and I were better by taking up the Christian cross daily. Part of taking up the cross is denying ourselves the lusts and appetites of the flesh. For it is better, the resurrected Jesus said, that ye should deny yourselves of these things wherein ye will take up your cross. Thus, the daily taking up of the cross means daily denying ourselves the appetites of the flesh. By emulating the Master, who endured temptations but gave no heed unto them, we too can live in a world filled with temptations such as are common to man. Of course Jesus noticed the tremendous temptations that came to him, but he did not process and reprocess them. Instead, he rejected them promptly. If we entertain temptations, soon they begin entertaining us. Turning these unwanted lodgers away at the very doorstep of the mind is one way of giving no heed. Besides, these would-be lodgers are actually barbarians who, if admitted, can be evicted only with great trauma. In a decaying environment, the mind is the last redoubt of righteousness, and it must be preserved even amid bombardment by evil stimuli. Christ is competent to see us through, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. As promised, he will make either a way to escape or a way to bear it. We have surely been warned and forewarned about our time, a period in which the compression of challenges may make a year seem like a decade. Members will be cleverly mocked and scorned by those in the great and spacious building, representing the pride of the world. No matter, for ere long, he who was raised on the third day will raise that spacious but third-class hotel. Ours will even be a time of great inversion as well as perversion. Some will call good evil and evil good. Others, in their ignorance of spiritual truths, will speak evil of those things which they know not. Peace has already been taken from the earth. Nation will rise against nation. It will also be a time of hardening as the love of many waxes cold and iniquity abounds. Secular bewilderment will be epidemic amid the distress of nations with perplexity, as various vexations will mock man's cosmetic remedies. One poet wrote, How small of all that human hearts endure, that part which laws or kings can cause or cure. We cannot expect to live in such a world without experiencing certain consequences of these conditions. Yet we can always keep our covenants, even if we cannot keep such conditions from coming. The Lord, who knows all that through which we will pass, will help us to overcome in our small moment of time. If we are settled, we will endure it well and hold fast. Endured righteously, all these things shall give us experience and shall be for our good. Think it not strange when disciples are called upon to pass through fiery trials, said Peter. Even so, brothers and sisters, the saints of God, as prophesied, 
will eventually cry unto the Lord day and night until deliverance comes. The spiritually settled will finally overcome, and the glorious promise is, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Meanwhile, let us remember what manner of persons we ought to be. Attributively, we are to become even as Jesus, with his virtues being increasingly replicated in our lives. Even in the midst of our obvious imperfections, a sacred process is to be underway, if slowly, nevertheless, resolutely. Whatever one's unfolding agenda, he can be overcoming if he is becoming more like Christ. Even though scarred by the past, if contrite, Jesus' promise is, I shall heal them. Such shall become alive again in Christ because of their faith. As part of his infinite atonement, Jesus knows, according to the flesh, all that through which we pass. He has borne the sins, grief, sorrows, and declared Nephi the pains of every man, woman, and child. Having been perfected in his empathy, Jesus thus knows how to succor us. We can therefore actually do as Peter urged and cast our cares upon the Lord. He is familiar with them, including even the feeling of being forsaken. Nothing is beyond his redeeming reach or his encircling empathy. Therefore, we should not complain about our own life's not being a rose garden when we remember who wore the crown of thorns. I turn now to the conclusion of Jesus' mortal messiahship. Luke reported Jesus' sweating in Gethsemane as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This fact is fully validated in the other books of Restoration Scripture. Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to bleed at every pore, and to suffer both body and spirit, and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. The necessary but awesome shedding of Jesus' blood thus occurred not only in the severe scourging, but earlier in Gethsemane. A recent and thoughtful article by several physicians on the physical death of Christ indicates that, quoting, the severe scourging with its intense pain and appreciable blood loss most probably left Jesus in a pre-shock state. We all recall, of course, that a dramatically weakened Jesus needed help to carry the cross. Quoting again, therefore, even before the actual crucifixion, Jesus' physical condition was at least serious and probably critical, although scourging may have resulted in considerable blood loss. Crucifixion, per se, was a relatively bloodless procedure. End of quote. In addition to the consequences of scourging, how Christ's lifeblood had already flowed in Gethsemane. Remember, he suffered both body and spirit, declared King Benjamin, Christ would suffer even more than a man can suffer, except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from his every pore, so great shall be his anguish. Having bled at every pore, how red his raiment must have been in Gethsemane, how crimson that cloak. No wonder when Christ comes in power and glory that he will come in reminding red attire, signifying not only the winepress of wrath, but also to bring to our remembrance how he suffered for each of us in Gethsemane and on Calvary. In recent years, as I have sung the hymns of the Atonement, it has been with an especially full heart and also with a full voice when I can continue to sing. Lines such as, How Great Thou Art, I scarce can take it in, to rescue a soul so rebellious and proud as mine. I stand all amazed 
and oh, it is wonderful. Now, my brothers and sisters, let not Jesus' redemption for us stop at the immortalizing dimension of the atonement, the loosing of the bands of death. Let us grasp the proffered gift of eternal life. We will either end up choosing Christ's manner of living or his manner of suffering. It is either suffer even as I or overcome even as he overcame. His beckoning command is to become even as I am. The spiritually settled accept that invitation, and through the atonement of Christ, they become and overcome. In this unsettled world, may we settle this in our hearts as a firm determination. I pray in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, as we approach the Easter season, our minds and thoughts turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, resurrection, and atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. John the Baptist, who was commissioned to be the forerunner of the Savior in his day, declared that our Father in heaven had not forgotten his children on this earth. He said, The Father loveth the Son, and had given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son had everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abided in him. The coming of the Savior was prophesied by many prophets in the, in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon. The prophet Isaiah of the Old Testament predicted the coming of the Savior's birth when he said, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. For unto us a child is born, unto us his son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The Book of Mormon, as another testament of Jesus Christ, records that an angel appeared unto King Benjamin and declared the glad tidings of great joy 124 years before the coming of Christ. And the angel said, For behold, the time cometh, and is not far distant, that with power the Lord omnipotent who reigneth, who was and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from heaven among the children of men, and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay, and shall go forth amongst men, working mighty miracles, such as healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk and the blind to receive their sight, and the deaf to hear, and curing all manner of diseases. And he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, the Creator of all things from the beginning, and his mother shall be called Mary. Throughout the thousand years of Book of Mormon history, many prophets bore solemn witness of the divinity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, of his premortal godhood, of his earthly ministry, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and the plan of salvation by which we can make his atonement effective in our lives. These prophets spoke from pure knowledge, knowledge that came from personal visitation of the Savior, to them by the testimony of angels who spoke with them, by visions and by the power of the Holy Ghost. They knew whereof they spoke and could not be shaken from their testimonies. Let us consider the example of Jacob. Jacob was confronted by Sherem, who denied Christ, and contended with him and demanded a sign. He preached with much flattery and much power of speech, questioning Jacob, Jacob's testimony. Jacob said, And he had hoped to shake me from the faith, notwithstanding the many revelations and many things which I had seen concerning these things. For I truly had seen angels. They had ministered unto me, and also I had heard the voice of the Lord speaking unto me in very word from time to time 
wherefore I could not be shaken. President Ezra Taft Benson of Beloved Prophet has encouraged us to study the Book of Mormon. And he said, for the book that will get man nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than any other book needs to be studied constantly. I hope and pray that we will follow the admonition of our beloved prophet, President Benson, and constantly study the Book of Mormon. We all need the assurance that we are living in obedience to the commandments of God so that we can receive His Spirit and be guided by it in our daily life. The Savior as the Son of God showed up, you and I the great example of obedience in keeping the commandments of His Father. Nephi tells that Christ was baptized so that man can follow his footsteps and receive the Holy Ghost. Know ye not that he was holy? But notwithstanding he being holy, he showed unto the children of men that according to the flesh he humbled himself before the Father and witnessed unto the Father that he would be obedient unto him in keeping his commandments. Several weeks ago, I was assigned to a state conference in Provo and the Sunday morning welfare meeting was scheduled to begin at 7.30 a.m. So it was necessary that I leave home about 6.15 in the morning, just as I came to an intersection before turning onto the on-ramp to enter the freeway. The light changed to red. As I stopped at the light that early hour, now about 6.30 a.m., there were no cars in sight. Mine was the only car parked at the stoplight. The thought did cross my mind that if I ignored the red light, no one would be hurt when endangered, for not a car was inside at that early hour. Nevertheless, I waited out the light change and proceeded on the green light. If I had turned left, no one would have known, but I would know that I was breaking the traffic code, and surely the Lord would know. I was reminded of a scripture which said, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and do it not, to him it is sin. Brothers and sisters, oftentimes we are tempted to compromise with circumstances at the moment, but we must exercise care and live the principles of righteous living at all times, so we will know what to do when called upon to make a decision of a far greater importance. We must always be examples to the world as members of the Lord's kingdom, and keep the laws of the land and the laws of God. The Lord said in a letter to Revelation, Wherefore, be not weary in well-doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work, and out of the small things which that preceded that which is great. Behold, the Lord required the heart and a willing mind, and the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land of Zion in these last days. Recently, as a member of the Utah South Area Presidency, I was invited to participate in an institute program with men and women at the Utah State Penitentiary. As I visited these men and women, my heart went out to them, for they are all our Heavenly Father's children. Many are there because of wrong choices they made in life when temptation was put before them. I saw pain and suffering in their eyes, and yet as I think of their loved ones, Parents, brothers, sisters, wives, children, they too have suffered much and perhaps are still faced with more suffering in the future. President Kimball said, We should hate the sin, but love the sinner. He further stated, Suffering can make saints of people as they learn patience, long-suffering, and self-mastery. He also said suffering of our Savior were part of his education. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made perfect became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Elder James C. Talmadge wrote, No pang that is suffered by men owing upon the earth will be without its compensating effect, if it be met with patience. On the other hand, wrong choices can crush us with their mighty impact if we yield to weaknesses, complaints, and criticisms. In closing, may I quote Orson F. Whitney, who said, No pain we suffer, no trial that we experience is wasted. It ministers to our education, to the development of such qualities as patience, faith, fortitude, and humility. All that we suffer and all that we endure, especially when we endure it patiently, builds up our characters, purifies our hearts, 
expands our souls, and makes us more tender and charitable, more worthy to be called the children of God. It is through sorrow and suffering, toil and tribulation, that we gain the education we came here to acquire, and which will make us more like our Father and Mother in heaven. The Lord who suffered much, who was crucified, was resurrected, and for the sins of all man, mankind, said, If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The people of each dispensation have received the teaching and admonition of living and had the admonition of living prophets to care for one another. The sons of Mosiah were desirous that salvation should be declared to every creature, for they could not bear that any human soul should perish, yea, even the very thoughts that any soul should endure endless torment did cause them to quake and tremble. This spirit of being anxiously engaged about those who are not partaking of the blessings of the gospel is not confined to those who are called as shepherds, but should permeate the lives of all God's children. True shepherds nourish and care for each member of the flock and keep them in remembrance. They do not simply number them. Shepherds know and care for their flock. A shepherd cannot rest when even one of the flock is lost. Some years ago, as a young man, I had the opportunity to work summers on a ranch with my wise Uncle Frank, who taught me an important lesson about shepherding. He described to me how lambs are enticed and led away from the safety of their mother's side and the flock that loves and cares for them. Cunning coyotes send their pups to play near the flock, running, rollicking, tumbling. It looks so inviting to the little lambs. The frolicking pups look like they're having so much fun that the lambs are enticed to wander from the protective environment of the flock and their mother's nurturing side. In their innocence, they fail to observe the adult coyotes are moving in a circle, ready to pounce and cut them off from the flock, ultimately killing and devouring them. This is also Satan's way. He uses our free agency to entice us with apparent good times. Soon we may become entrapped, and if not eventually brought back to the flock, we will not be able to go to the temple, enter into the covenants, and receive the ordinances necessary to attain eternal life that we might live in the presence of God the Father and Jesus Christ. Some of us have strayed at one time or another. Some have repented and come back. But some, for one reason or another, are still looking for the right moment, the right person, the right set of circumstances to come back. As member shepherds in our Heavenly Father's flock, we should not judge why some have strayed, but rather should try unceasingly to bring them back again into the flock, knowing Jesus can heal them when none other can. In 1829, the Lord instructed us through his first Latter-day Saint prophet, Joseph Smith, to remember the worth of souls as great in the sight of God, and how great is his joy in the soul that repenteth. Also, the Lord has instructed us in Book of Mormon times, I have none other object save it be the everlasting welfare of your souls. In this, the last dispensation, we have prophets to guide and direct us with their counsel. A significant proclamation was given by the First Presidency at Christmas time in 1985. It was an invitation to come back. Because of the significance of this special message from prophets in our day, Please let me share some of the key admonitions that apply to each of us as we serve one another. The message from the First Presidency in part said, We are aware of some who are inactive, of others who have become critical and are prone to find fault, and of those who have been disfellowshipped or excommunicated because of serious transgressions. To all such we reach out in love. We are anxious to forgive in the spirit of him who said, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive. But of you, it is required to forgive all men. 
we encourage church members to forgive those who may have wronged them. To those who have ceased activity and to those who have become critical, we say, come back. Come back and feast at the table of the Lord and taste again the sweet and satisfying fruits of fellowship with the saints. We are confident that many have longed to return but have felt awkward about doing so. We assure you, you will find open arms to receive you and willing hands to assist you. We know there are many who carry heavy burdens of guilt and bitterness. To such we say, set them aside and give heed to the words of the Savior. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lonely in heart, and ye shall find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We plead with you. We pray for you. We invite and welcome you with love and appreciation. Sincerely, your brethren, the First Presidency. For you and me, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, our responsibilities are clear. We are to reach out in love and be anxious to forgive those who have wronged us and help by fellowshipping and caring for those who want to come back, receiving them with open arms and willing hands. We must do as Jude, the brother of James, admonished, and of some have compassion, making a difference. There are principles which will help us to have compassion, making a difference. These principles are encompassed in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus used three parables to give example of the importance he placed on finding those who were lost and rendering compassion, making a difference. In the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd went after the lost sheep, searched until he found the lost lamb. He then returned rejoicing. In the parable of the lost coin, the widow lit a candle, giving light, and swept every corner to find the lost coin. She rejoiced upon finding it. But of both of these parables are examples of action taken to search, light up the darkness, and sweep until a treasured possession or a lost soul is found and returned to a rejoicing home. On the other hand, in the parable of the prodigal son, a caring father patiently waited for his son to come to himself. He provided a loving atmosphere at home to welcome his son with open arms and willing hands so that they might rejoice together. The key is that the son knew that upon his return he would be loved and welcomed home by his father. Coming home, excuse me, coming home can have its challenges too. When the prodigal son came home, his faithful brother was jealous of the attention extended to his repentant brother. The faithful brother was judgmental and had not developed spiritually enough to rejoice at his brother's return. The father had to reassure the faithful son of his love. Now the returning prodigal son had a chance to practice the same forgiving and accepting attitude toward his jealous brother that he was experiencing from his father. Those who return need a forgiving attitude towards others' faults, or complete repentance is not possible. If we want the Lord and others to forgive our faults, we must be forgiving of others. Those who come back must not be judgmental, but must remember that none of us are perfect either. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, how can we develop a caring environment in our homes, in our meeting houses, which will give comfort to those who want to come back, knowing they will be welcomed and loved upon their return? A good example of compassion and service making a difference is the example of Dawn and Marion Summers, representing the experiences of many other missionary couples. While serving in England, they were asked to serve their last six months of their mission in the Swindon branch to teach and assist in activating members. For 80 years, Swindon had been a branch with a faithful few and many good members becoming less active. Don and Marion recently wrote me, recalling the following. On our first visit to Swindon branch, it was a bit disheartening as we met with the saints in a cold rented hall. The congregation numbered 17 including President and Sister Hales and four missionaries. Still wearing our winter coats, we all huddled around a small, inadequate heater while we listened to a Sunday school lesson. The letter continued, 
A branch member approached me one day, Elder Summers, can I give you a bit of advice? Never mention the word tithing to the Swindon members. They really don't believe in it, and all you'll do is upset them. Brother Summers said we did teach tithing and all the other gospel principles. With example and encouragement of a branch president, there was a change of heart. Faith and activity started to increase. The membership records were completely updated as we visited every member's home. When the leaders started caring, the members began to respond, and a whole new spirit pervaded the branch. The members became excited again about the gospel and helping one another. Firesides were held in our homes. We worked closely with stake and other proselyting missionaries. We made a promise to the Lord that we would not let one new or reactivated member fall into activity while we were in Swindon. One young couple had a difficult adjustment to make as their customs, manners, and dress were different. They became offended at suggestions for changes. The couple twice wrote to the bishop, since by then it was a ward, and asked to have their names removed from the Church records. In the last letter, they forbade any of the members to visit them. So Marion and I went to the florist and purchased a beautiful plant of chrysanthemums and had it delivered to the young couple. It was a simple note. We love you. We miss you. We need you. Please come back. Signed, Swindon Ward. The next Sunday was fast and testimony, our last Sunday in Swindon. There were 103 members in attendance compared to 17 attending six months before. The young couple was there, and in bearing his testimony, the husband thanked the Swindon Ward for not giving up on them. Each of us can have similar experiences in our local wards and branches by working with and loving those who are less active. What a joy it is to give compassion, making a difference, to those who may be ready to find themselves and then want to come back. Concerning those who are not numbered among his people, Jesus said to the Nephites, Nevertheless, ye shall not cast him out of your synagogues or your places of worship, for unto such shall ye continue to minister. For ye know not but what they will return and repent and come unto me with full heart, and I shall heal them, and ye shall be the means of bringing salvation unto them. Brothers and sisters, May we leave this conference with a renewed determination through our prayers of faith and with compassion making a difference to bring back but one precious soul back to salvation and exaltation. May the prayer of Alma be our prayer. O Lord, wilt thou comfort my soul? Give unto me success and also my fellow laborers who are with me. Wilt thou grant unto them that they may have strength that they may bear their afflictions with such and come unto me. O Lord, wilt thou grant unto us that we may have success in bringing them again unto thee in Christ? Behold, O Lord, their souls are precious, and many of them are our brethren. Therefore, give unto us, O Lord, power and wisdom that we may bring these, our brethren, again unto thee. We love you. We miss you. We need you. Please come back. Come back to go to the temple, enter into the covenants, and receive the ordinances of eternal salvation. In the name of our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, amen. Near here stands a tall building, 26 stories high. In it are two banks of elevators, one an express, one that loses a little more normally. Not long ago, I got on the express elevator. Some of our workers there say it could qualify as a ride at Disneyland. A little boy and his father got on with us. Suddenly, the elevator took off, and the little boy, not expecting the thrill, lost his breath and looked up at his dad and said, Daddy, does Heavenly Father know we're coming? <laughs> Think about the great lesson in that little heart. Dr. Joanne Larson, a Salt Lake 
City Family Therapist recently gave some wise and practical counsel on teaching children and building their self-esteem. She reminded us of the tendency most parents have in their efforts to teach their children responsibility of so often stressing the negative things that children do, the mistakes and misjudgments they make, the inconveniences and trouble they cause. She made the statement between birth and 20 years of age, the average child hears from parents, teachers, siblings, and peers probably 100,000 negative messages which are rarely balanced with positive messages. With an extremely lucky child, the ratio would probably be 10 negatives to one positive, which she claims can be highly damaging, often for life, to a child's feeling of self-worth. And she encourages us all to develop lenses, vision, that see positive instead of negatives, thus making it possible to perform miracles sometimes and certainly greatly improving the results of our teaching efforts in parent-child relationships. The good accomplished toward the making of a better world through upbuilding trusting approaches to life situations in contrast to those that tear them down could very possibly be accurately assessed. Why is it as humans we tend to emphasize the negative when there's so much to be positive about? We not only constantly criticize our children and each other, find fault and are very judgmental and so often seek out and build people's weaknesses and failings rather than their strengths and successes, but in our own personal lifestyles there are those of us who are incessantly chronic worriers. We worry about all the negative things that could happen, but usually don't, rather than positively trying to face problems with some amount of faith and hope of success. Then in our society, for some reason, we seem to dwell on the bizarre, the tragedy, the profane, and the evils of our day. So often the newspapers and television reports center attention around the negative aspects of life. Teenage suicides, drugs, AIDS, murders, infidelities, dishonesty, and a host of other social ills. As I travel the church, I occasionally see another form of thinking that can become quite negative. Members weighted down, sometimes grimly, with the serious tasks that they must perform earn livings, pay mortgages, rear children, faithfully fulfill church callings, attend to school and community responsibilities, live righteously and worthily. The list could go on and on. I often think that for some of these people, the joy and excitement have gone out of their lives, and all that they look back on are crowded, grim days, often filled with great guilt because of the pressure of trying to accomplish everything they think is necessary and to be perfect right now. Interestingly, negative attitudes seem to affect us in that way. Now, of course, life is serious. Children must be taught. Bills must be paid. We must live righteously. It's the Lord's counsel to us. We can't help but worry sometimes. There are and always will be never-ending negatives existing all around us, which must, be, which must be faced and dealt with and solved. But I wonder if the constant bombardment of dilemmas and challenges and the often seemingly hopeless situations, both personal and nationwide, don't frustrate, discourage, and depress us. Sometimes to the point where our minds and attitudes are distracted from the very principles that would allow us to rise above the negative and find the positive answers we need. In spite of the many negative occurrences in life, there are those who seem to have the knack of seeing the positive. A young businessman was opening a new branch office, and a friend sent a floral arrangement to help celebrate the occasion. When the friend arrived at the opening, he was appalled to find the wreath bore the inscription, Rest in Peace. <laughs> Angrily, he later complained to the florist. After apologizing, the florist said, Look at it this way. Somewhere today a man was buried with a wreath that said, Good luck in your new location. 
in the Book of Mormon, in the Book of Mormon, in which we find many answers and so much direction in solving problems, there is a scripture that to me sheds great light on the matter of a positive, trusting, hopeful attitude of faith as a substitute for facing life's problems with discouragement, despair. Listen to the words of the prophet Ether as he exhorts us to know and believe in God as a foundation of hope and faith. By faith all things are fulfilled. Wherefore, whoso believeth in God might with surety hope for a better world, yea, even a place at the right hand of God, which hope cometh of faith, maketh an anchor to the souls of men, which would make them sure and steadfast, always abounding in good works, being led to glorify God. Throughout the whole of this marvelous chapter, we are taught the wonders accomplished by faith, love, and hope. Seems to me that dwelling on negative thoughts and approaches is, in fact, working directly opposite of hope, faith, and trust in the Lord, ourselves, and others, and causes continual feelings of gloom while the positive lifts and buoys us up, encourages us to forge ahead, and is an attitude that can be developed, a habit that we can cultivate. The epitome of celebrating the beautiful and overlooking the misfortune is the story of Thomas More. Soon after he was married, Thomas More, the famous 19th century Irish poet, was called away on a business trip. On his return, he was met at the door not by his beautiful bride, but by the family doctor. Your wife is upstairs, said the doctor, but she asked that you not come up. Then Moore learned the terrible truth. His wife had contracted smallpox, a disease that left her once flawless skin pocked and scarred. She had taken one look at her reflection in the mirror and commanded that the shutters be drawn, that her husband never see her again. Moore would not listen. He ran upstairs, threw open the door of his wife's room. It was black as night inside. Not a sound came from the darkness. Groping along the wall, Moore felt for the gas jets. A startled cry came from the back corner of the room. No, she said, don't light the lamps. Moore hesitated, swayed by the pleading in the voice. Go, she begged, please go. This is the greatest gift I can give you now. Moore did go. He went down to his study, where he sat up most of the night prayerfully writing. Not a poem this time, but a song. He had never written a song before, but now he found it more natural to his mood than simple poetry. He not only wrote the words, but he wrote the music too. The next morning, as soon as the sun was up, he returned to his wife's room. He felt his way to a chair and sat down. Are you awake, he asked. I am, came a voice from the far side of the room, but you must not ask to see me. You must not press me, Thomas. I will sing to you then, he answered. And so for the first time, Thomas More sang to his wife the song that still lives today. Believe me, if all those endearing young charms which I gaze on so fondly today were to change by tomorrow and flee in my arms like fairy gifts fading away, thou wouldst still be adored as this moment thou art. Let thy loveliness fade as it will. Moore heard a movement from the dark corner where his wife lay in her loneliness. He continued, Let thy loveliness fade as it will, and around the dear ruin each wish of my heart would entwine itself verdantly still. The song ended. As his voice trailed off in the last note, Moore heard his bride rise. She crossed the room to the window, reached up, and drew open the shutters. We need more such attitudes. There is the story of the husband and wife who had saved and saved for a new car. After taking delivery, the husband told his wife that all the necessary legal documents and insurance information were in a packet in the glove compartment. On her first day out in the new car, she was involved in an accident which demolished the front end of the car. Unhurt, in tears, and near panic, 
She opened the packet to show the police officer her papers. There she found a handwritten note from her husband which read, now that you've had an accident, remember I can always replace the car, but not you. Please know how much I love you. As stated in the beginning, that with children we so often see the negative before the positive, a little boy was almost squelched in his attempt to express his feelings because an adult didn't understand. Special friend of mine, Dr. Thomas Meyer, shared this tender experience. Small boy accompanied his father and grandparents into a medical office. The old man was leaning on the boy's two upstretched hands as he moved. The child encouraged him with, come on, Grandpa, you can make it. Only a little further, Grandpa. The doctor will make your leg better. A sweet grandmother walked behind. After the visit, the three exited the same way. The little boy was given a helium balloon on his way out. He helped his grandfather to the car and then ran back in. Pulling himself up to the counter, asked the receptionist, please, may I have another balloon? His grandmother, still standing there, scolded him. Of course you can't. I warned you not to let that balloon go. She apologized to the receptionist. He did this last week, went right outside and let his balloon go. I really did warn him this time. The little boy was trying to tell her something. She bent down to listen. Then with tears showing on her thin, wrinkled face, the grandmother asked, could he please have another balloon? You see, his little sister died a few months ago and he wanted her to have a balloon to play with. As critical and judgmental as we often must be, as much as we have to correct, as truly as we must face unpleasant realities all of our days, let's recognize and praise the thousands of beauties of life around us, the many wonderful examples of virtuous living, the strengths and the courage of so many souls, the exceptional talents and achievement of our family members, neighbors, our associates, the countless blessings that we have been given. As has been quoted by so many, it seems to fit well here. Two men looked out through the selfsame bars, one saw the mud, the other the stars, as the prophet Moroni taught us. But charity, in this case, the charity in our thinking and appreciation of others, the charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever. And whosoever is found possessed of it at the last day, it shall be well with him. Remember, my brothers and sisters, particularly you young people, Christ came to lift us up, not put us down. I, with these great brethren on the stand as a witness, invite you to come unto him in the name of Jesus Christ.